Well, it's a joy to welcome in uh, many who are joining us live online or others who are catching us later in the week in the archived version. Either way, it's really good to have you be a part of worship with us at Freedom Church. Uh, If you weren't here last week, we began a new series last Sunday that's going to carry us through most of the summer entitled Unexpected Heroes. It is a look each week at a different character in the scriptures who God used someone that God used powerfully to bring about change and really impact the world around them. But we're picking out the characters that seemed the least likely that God would use. And so uh, we started last week with Jacob. And we're going to jump forward in time several hundred years. And I always like for us, I I want us to be a biblically literate people. When we talk about a character, when we talk about a story, we don't want it to just be some nebulous idea of, well, somewhere way back a long time ago this happened. I want you to know how God's great epic story fits together. So I'm just going to remind you that Jacob's story took place about 2,000 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham and the father of the 12 sons that would become the heads of the 12 tribes. That story takes place in the book of Genesis. Now, we're going to be today in the book of Judges. If you want to go ahead and be turning there in your Bible, you can be jumping into the book of Judges. I want you to just see how this fits into the flow of things. The book of Genesis covers a span of more than 2,000 years, at least 2,000 and, and something more than that, from creation through Jacob and his 12 descendants. And at the end of Genesis, they have departed the Holy Land. They've gone into Egypt because they're trying to escape a famine. And then there's about a 400-year span between the end of Genesis and the start of Exodus. And it's interesting to realize that these first five books of the Bible, what's known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those five books, all penned by Moses... The first one covering more than 2,000 years, but once you get through the second chapter of Exodus, the next four books cover only about 40 years. Moses is writing, and he's writing about a period in his own life, so he can give us a lot more detail in that. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are going to spell out the 40 years that follow from the time that God frees his people from bondage in Egypt, and they make this 40-year journey through the wilderness to go and, and experience the Holy Land. So when we get to the end of, of Deuteronomy, we are, are at the very edge of the Holy Land. And now the book of Joshua, which is the sandwich in between the Pentateuch and Judges, where we'll be today. Joshua is the story of the conquest of the Promised Land. The, you know, it's, it's just an interesting layout. So it, it doesn't flow as if it sort of each book takes a similar amount of time. So we've got about 2,100 years in the first book of the Bible. Once you get past the second chapter of the second book, we've got four books that span about 40 years, the Exodus journey. And then the next book, the sixth book of Joshua, it only spans 25 or 30 years. It's just the story, a grand story it is, of the taking of, it's a real short period of time, but the taking of the Holy Land under the leadership of Joshua, who has been Moses' right-hand man through this whole Exodus experience. So when we get to the conclusion of Joshua... Israel now exists as a a significant group of people, but not an organized nation of people. There are a couple of million of them at least, and they've gone in and taken possession of a good part of the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But they're really just 12 very disorganized tribes who are each trying to find their own territory, claim their own stake on the, the land that God had promised. And so we get to the book of Judges. As I've said, little short spans of time in most of the previous five books, Exodus through Joshua, basically 70 years in those five books combined. But we get to the book of Judges, we're going to cover a span of 300 years. 
And the stories in the book of Judges are the bloodiest of anything that you'll read in all the Bible. There are more people that die in Judges than probably all the other books put together. It's a very bloody book. Judges is the bridge that gets us from the exodus and the taking of the Holy Land to the monarchy. I know you didn't come for a history lesson, but just just understand that that's what Judges does. When Judges is over, when the period of the Judges is done... Saul is going to take over as king, and for the first time, Israel is going to come together as one unified nation. Not twelve scattered tribes, but one group of people under one king. And Saul will reign for forty years, and then David will reign for forty years, and then Solomon for forty, and then the kingdom is going to be divided between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. But Judges is the bridge that gets us from the, we're a disorganized group of people taking the Holy Land over to the point where we are one nation of people under God and under one king. In that span of 300 years in between that the book of Judges describes, there is one line that is the recurring theme that sums up what life was like in Israel for 300 years. And this is the line. There was no king in Israel, so every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's a scary thought. And we see the effects of that in Judges. Now, the book of Judges tells a, a roller coaster story of a cycle that happens six different times recorded in this book. It's a real easy to understand cycle. The cycle just looks like this. God delivers his people, and after a season, they sort of forget about God. They rebel against God. They stop obeying his commandments. They stop honoring him as their God, and they begin to worship other gods. And as a result of that... God punishes them. He lets them fall to the hands of some other pagan people who come in, use and abuse them for some number of years. And after enough years of suffering, stubborn and strong-willed people finally go, This stinks! We better call on the Lord. And they begin to cry out. And after a season, God hears their prayers. He raises up a new deliverer, a new judge, to go in and lead them to new victory and freedom and for a season of time, usually for a generation, there will be peace and the people will honor and follow the Lord and then the cycle begins all over again. The book of Judges records six of these cycles. Boy, can we not learn from history. They did the same thing again and again. We're going to read today about one of the best known stories of one of these cycles and maybe the best known judge in all of the book of Judges. Now, when we, we use the term judge today and it has virtually nothing to do with the Old Testament concept of a judge. When we say judge, we think of a guy in a black robe and a you know, gavel in his hand and he's, he's ruling over the court. And that's not at all what a judge in the Old Testament was. There is no real modern day equivalent to this. Judges were charismatic leaders who were not elected. They were not kings. They were not governors. They, it was just this really vague sense of out of a group of sort of disorganized people who were in a bad way, somebody would need to emerge and God would send his spirit to descend on some individual. Sometimes it was a man. Sometimes it was a woman. Deborah was a prime example of a, of a female judge that stepped in and God used powerfully to bring deliverance. And so the spirit would descend on one person who would emerge and typically instead of leading the whole nation, 
It would be a judge that would lead either a tribe or a handful of the tribes to come together. And through them, he would bring about this great deliverance. And so they didn't rule as king. And, you know, it, it, there, there's just no real clear sense other than just the hand of God and the spirit of God said, this is the man. This is the woman that I'm using. And it just became apparent to everyone. And so they would lead in some great movement. And for a season, that would be the defining movement for the people. And then usually when that judge would die off, a whole new phase would begin for the people of God that usually wasn't a pretty one. So you have a sense of what's going on. Now, again, I realize that's a history lesson you weren't looking for. But hopefully that helps to frame today's character and the next couple of characters that we're going to talk about since they're all going to be judges. Today's character is one that you probably have all heard of. His name is Gideon. And his story is just one of the best in the Old Testament for some surprising reasons. So uh, I've given you an outline, and it's not that there are by any means seven points to the story surrounding Gideon. I've just given you these as just kind of teaching points to just tell us the story. The story begins, as all of these cycles do, that disobedience brought God's judgment on Israel in the form of enemy occupation. If you want to begin reading with me in uh, Judges chapter 6, we'll just look at the opening verses where it says, Again... And, and if you read, if you back up and read from Judges 1, you'll see why he's saying, again, because they've already done this cycle multiple times. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. It's always interesting me, to me to see how many years a person or a group of people have to just suffer horrible misery before they, they finally yield to God. Last week, you remember how many years it was for Jacob? Anybody remember? It was 20 years altogether. It was 14 to, to start it off, but then six more tacked on to that. He said, for 20 years I've lived in this misery. And don't you know God's going, yep, and I've been waiting all 20 years for you to finally give up and yield to me. Well, it took seven years this time around for the people of God living in misery to realize what's going on. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain cliffs, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. This is the same Gaza we hear about today. This is way, way, way to the southwest on the coast. So he's saying all of the territory, all their, their crops were destroyed. They didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. It's just a picture of total misery. That a foreign people who have no respect for the Israelites or, or their possessions or their God or their customs, they just come and take over the land. They take over all the houses. They take over their fields and their crops. And so as a people across the board, they've had to abandon their cities and their homes. And Israel, if you go visit it today, every direction you look, it seems like there are all these caves. I mean, just thousands of them and so they they just went to living in these caves and any kind of rock overhang anything for shelter because these people have come in and ravaged the land can you imagine seven years of living like that that's where they've been that kind of misery because of their disobedience now before we move on i just want to ask you this question because it's easy to keep a story at arm's distance but do you remember why we said last week we have these stories and why we rehearse these stories it's because we're looking for how this story connects with us. 
Where am I in this story? So here's my question to you. As we consider Israel's disobedience and the utter misery that followed that, I want to ask you a real personal question. When has there been disobedience in your life that has led to a season of suffering and misery? Don't answer out loud. Not, not now. But we don't have small group to discuss this this week. So I'm going to have to ask some of the application questions in here today. I want you to think about that. Because for every person, I think it's safe to say, everybody in the room, definitely starting with the preacher. There have been some times when we did what we knew we weren't supposed to do. Or where God clearly instructed us and we went, I don't think so. And as a result, there was a season of suffering that followed. Not because God's an angry God, not because he's a big bad God, but because God has always been seeking to teach his people right up to today the most fundamental lesson in life that God was trying to teach then. He's still trying to teach us today. And here's the lesson. Blessing will follow obedience. Suffering will follow disobedience. Now, it doesn't mean that when you obey, you never suffer. That's not what he's teaching us at all. But in general, the basic idea, if you love and obey God, there will always be blessing to follow that. When you rebel against God or you disobey what God's told you to do, there will always be suffering as a result. And so God's just given his people over to that. When have you experienced that? I don't have to think long and hard about it. I I can think of, of multiple times in my life where I stepped out of the will of God over a specific issue. And paid a heavy price for it. I suspect you can recall that as well. Well, how do we see that ever redeemed? Let's see how the story unfolds. The next thing that happens is desperation caused Israel to cry out to God for help. That's a really good thing. The next thing we see is verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. It's kind of funny when you stop and think about it. They are being so oppressed by a foreign army and a foreign people. They need tanks. You know, they need weapons. They need an army. And God hears their cry. They finally get to that point where they've been crying out for seven years to all their stupid pagan gods who could offer no help and no relief. Don't you know how sickening that was to God to hear that as they're offering all of their sacrifices and their junk to, to Baal and Asherah and all these pagan gods, and they get nothing in return. And finally, somebody starts saying, hey, you know, it, it seems like it would make more sense for us to call on the God who got our ancestors out of bondage in Egypt and got us in this land. Let's call on that God and see what happens. And so they start calling on the true God. And, and as they begin to do this in earnest, God says, I hear your cry. I care about what you're going through, as he always does. And so he's going to send them what they need. And he sends them a prophet. What's up with that? I mean, seriously, if a foreign army invades and you start crying out to God for relief, do you want him to give you a preacher? I mean, I like preachers, but that's not what I'm looking for when a foreign army invades. I want a general. I want a new president. I want somebody who can lead. He sends a prophet. We don't even know who the prophet was. We don't know his name. We just know this, that that prophet stood and declared to God's people, this is who God is, and this is what God has done for you and for your ancestors, and here's why you're in the mess that you're in. You see, before God would offer any relief, he had to put his finger on the source of the problem. Now, this is a really important principle for some of us to hold on to. 
Because when we're in the middle of a mess, often, oftentimes of our own making, not always, but way too many times in my own life, the messes I've had a, a hand in making. You know, I, I don't care who made the mess. When I'm in the middle of suffering and misery, I just want relief. I don't want rollades. I want relief. And it's funny how when you cry out to God for relief, oftentimes his initial answer is not relief. A lot of times his first response is to stick his finger in the middle of where it hurts. And it hurts worse when he does that, doesn't it? It's like, does that hurt right there? Yeah, that's the sore spot. Well, I want you to understand what the source of that sore spot is. You see, there's a great big sticker down in there that's festered up, and you don't see the source anymore. All you see is all the, the painful red stuff around it. But I want you to get to the source. I want to get that out. What God was doing was saying, it's not enough to give you relief. I could speak a word and run the Midianites all out. But I want you to understand why you're suffering. You will always suffer when you ignore me and you chase after other things that aren't me. So before we can bring any relief, we've got to deal with the source of the problem. And for some people watching and listening today, this is the heart of the message. You've been begging for relief, but you haven't been willing to let God deal with the root of the problem. Why is this continuing to go on? Because we've got to deal with the issue that we've been chasing after things that aren't the one true God. Then the third part of the story that we see is... After he points to the root of the problem, now we're introduced to the guy who is going to be the central character in the story other than God himself, Gideon. And I love, you just can't hardly help but love the character Gideon. And I finally have come to terms with why I like this guy so much. Because there's so much broken and wrong with him. A wise person taught me a long time ago, people will relate so much better to your weaknesses than they will to your strengths. Sure, we admire strength in other people, but we don't tend to relate to that nearly as well as we do when we see another person who's got real problems and warts and issues in their life. And it's like, oh, yeah, I get that guy. I've got I've got stuff like he's got. Gideon is one of the easiest to relate to characters that you'll ever read about in the Bible. And so, I mean, from the start, we don't know who wrote Judges, but whoever wrote it, he didn't put any extra shine on this. He's just giving you the real guy, Gideon. So listen as he's introduced. Verse 11 of chapter 6, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah. Now, don't get confused when this happens in the Scripture. Anytime it says the angel of the Lord, the angel just means messenger, but... This is God's representative. An angelic being is, is speaking. But as was the case in the Jacob story, he's going to kind of flip-flop between saying the Lord and the angel of the Lord. Just understand, he's, the writer's not confused and he's not trying to confuse us. It's God speaking, but he's speaking through his angel who's there to physically represent him. So the angel of the Lord, he shows up uh, at this place, this oak belonging to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. The only thing you needed to really grasp in that is that Gideon is in a place threshing wheat that you should never thresh wheat. He's in a wine press to do it. Basically, a, a little place with a wall all the way around 
where he is. And, and that's the last place you want to thresh wheat. You want to be out in the open and in the wind to be able to thresh wheat. He's doing it here because he's scared to death. He's, he's crouched out doing this. Oh, he's looking over his shoulder. I hope nobody sees me. It is the opening scene as the curtain goes up on Gideon. It is a picture of cowardice. He is scared to death. And you can just see this kind of like, wow, no Midianite sees me as he's working the wheat. Okay, you, you got the scene? You got that clearly in your mind? Now hear the word of the Lord through the angel. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Don't you know Gideon's going? You talking to me? Seriously? Are you really talking to me? I love the raw honesty of Gideon's response back. Now, the angel has opened up with a big line. And thankfully, he's got more to say than one line. I don't know about you. Some of the times when God has spoken to me most clearly and most directly, it will be in a line about this long. And that will be all I get in that moment. If this is all the Lord had said, it was profound. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon feels like anything but a mighty warrior, and he feels like, if anything, the Lord is with anybody else on earth but him. And so here's a real honest response. But sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Let me just tell you, there is some attitude in that response. That is not just, oh, come and teach me so I will understand better our plight. No. This is a guy who is miserable and he's heard enough God stories. He's heard about the Red Sea and about all of the plagues. And he has gotten to the point that he's like, that ain't doing jack for me here today. This is miserable. I don't see God. I don't feel God. Where is God? And the angel of the Lord comes and says, he is with you. Now, don't judge Gideon too harshly for his response. Because most of us in real life, in our most painful and trying circumstances, in our own way, have said exactly what Gideon has said. Where is God? I mean, I know the preacher is going to stand up and say, oh, he's right there with you. He's walking with you through that. But the truth is, the preacher and everybody in the room have had our times where we're like, if this is what God with us is like, I ain't crazy about it. Don't you know that's a fact? And he said, but he is with you. Mighty warrior. Gideon's just shaking his head. Are you kidding me? So the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have. That's a really interesting line. I wish we had more time to unpack. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all of the Midianites together. Uh, that's another really specific and packed statement. All together. There's a bazillion of them. And we're going to just strike them all down together like this almost in one moment of time. Yep, that's how it's going to happen. How on earth? And he just begins to say, you don't know who you're talking with. Let me just remind you. I am from Manasseh. If you're not real familiar with the tribes of Israel, there were 12 tribes. Jacob had 12 sons. 
Jacob became Israel. Israel has 12 sons. These are the heads of the 12 tribes. But if you pull out a map, you will find 13 territories. That's because 11 of the territories have the names of 11 of Jacob's sons. The 12th, the other son, was Joseph. There is no tribe named Joseph. The tribe that would have descended from Joseph was split into two half-tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. So he doesn't even belong to a full-fledged tribe. He belongs to a half-tribe, the half-tribe of Manasseh. And within the tribe of Manasseh, which is a bunch of people, they would break it down by clans and then by families. And he said, you know, if it is not enough that I'm only from a half-tribe, you do realize that within the entire tribe... And in our clan, I'm from the very weakest. Our family is the smallest and weakest family in the whole group. And within our family, I'm the runt of the litter. I'm the weakest one in the whole family. I think I may have shared this before, but every time I read this story, I think of the same thing. Everybody thinks that all pastors are golfers. You know, we just work on Sunday, we play golf all week long. If only it were so. And I'm a terrible golfer. And so I'll, I'll all along have people say, hey, you want to come play golf? You're a pastor. It's like, you know, it's automatic. You play golf. And I'll, you know, the question is, do you play golf? And I'll say, I play golf, but I'm the worst golf player that you know. And people are like, oh, I bet you're not that bad. No, I really am the worst golf player that you know. And when people aren't convinced, I, I just remind them of this. Look, back at my last church, we would do an annual fundraiser for the Hope Center. We'd put on a golf tournament. And when we do the tournament, we would just mix men and women together. We'd have women's teams and men's teams. And we wouldn't separate that out. The scoreboard would, ladies are right in there with the men. My team each year, which would be all men, we would be the last place team. Not only would every other man's team beat us, every women's team would beat us. And there was no handicapping. We were literally that bad. We were the worst team. And on the worst team among men and women, I was the worst player by far on the worst team. You see, I'm not lying when I tell you I'm the worst golfer that you know. So ironic. I live in Rock Creek on the golf course where we would do the tournaments every year. And now I'm trying to remember all the houses I would hit with golf balls when, you know, it's like, I've, I've really wondered at times if my house where I live now is one of the houses I hit with a golf ball. I, I was that bad. What the angel is saying to Gideon would be the golf equivalent of, of the angel appearing to me and saying, this year you will win the Masters, the U.S. Open and the British Open. <laughs> Lord, you can say that to anybody and maybe there's a shot. That ain't happening. And the Lord then saying, you go and play with the clubs that you now have. I mean, this is the equivalent of that, but on a much bigger scale with much bigger stakes. In response to that, Gideon felt inadequate, alone, and afraid. And in the face of all that he felt, God said, you are a mighty warrior. Gideon's like, no, I'm a coward hiding in a wine press. I'm a runt. And God said, no, you are. Or a mighty warrior. Was God just trying to, to pump him up and, and, you know, just fill him with, with some false notion of greatness? No. God was speaking of his destiny. And this is such a significant reality. To, to understand you have a destiny. When God looks at your life and when he looks at my life, he's not frozen in this moment of time to just say, hmm, let's see how Jim is doing. We'll define what we know about Jim by this moment. 
Let's look at Betsy back here. And we'll just define Betsy only by this moment of time. No, when God looks at Betsy, when God looks at Jim, when God looks at Mark, He looks at me through the course of our entire lives. He's able to look at the completion of this whole thing. So He's able to speak through all of that, through the future and the past, to say what He already knows about us. So God's not just trying to sort of, well, maybe I could sort of pump you up by telling you what I wish you would be. Oh, no, no. When God speaks, He speaks what He knows of who we are. When the angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's not a pump up speech. That's with a sense of awe. Because the angel is saying, the Father has already shown me what He's going to do through you. I realize I am in the presence of a conqueror. How cool is that? You see, the thing that's so cool about that is we may be sitting here going, Oh, man, I feel so small. I feel so weak. I feel so alone. I am so acquainted with my failures and weaknesses. And God says, Yeah, but I see how this thing finishes. And I look at you through the lens of the finished product. And I am crazy about how this works out. You won't believe how this works out. Fourth part in the story is we see that Gideon is not just somebody who felt inadequate, alone, and afraid, but Gideon struggled mightily with doubt, and he repeatedly asked God for signs. To, to all of this, Gideon's kind of like, well, that, that sounds good, but I just want to know that you even are who you're supposed to be. So I tell you what, I'm going to go fix some food, and I'm going to bring that back for you, and then if you don't mind, would you sort of kind of prove to me that you're who you're supposed to be? And so he goes and he makes some meat and some bread and some broth. And the angel says, I tell you what, you put it on that rock, you pour the broth out with the meat and the bread, you just put it over there and watch. And so he does all that and the angel takes his staff and goes, tap. And suddenly fire from the stone just goes and just consumes the broth and the meat and the bread. And then poof, the angel is gone. It's like, wow. I don't think that was just some stranger, some uh, lunatic off the street there. I believe maybe that was who it was supposed to be. Well, it would be maybe comforting if in that moment Gideon had gone. That's all I need to see. That's all I need to know. But Gideon is far from having all of his doubts laid to rest. A little bit deeper in the story, whenever God moves him further along and it's time to go and actually face the Midianites... You've got this whole thing of Gideon going, well, God, I just, you know, I, I realize what you've said to me and all of that, but uh, I just really need to know for sure that was you. Anybody besides me ever struggle with that? I can't tell you how many times God has spoken stuff in my life, and I'm like, God, I will run a thousand miles with that truth. If I can just know that was you, because I'm so scared that was me, because you see, I want that so bad. It might have been me that said that and not you. And so Gideon's like, God, just to get this real clear between you and me that it was you talking, here's the deal. I'm going to put out a wool fleece tonight. And if you wouldn't mind, would you keep everything around it completely dry, but would you just soak that fleece? And then I'll know it was you and we'll be good to go with that. So God says we can do that. He gets up the next morning, the ground and everything around it's dry as a bone. The fleece is soaked. He wrings it out, fills an entire bowl with water. And he's like, wow, that's pretty weird. That seems like God, but it could have been a fluke. It may have been a real small weather front right there, just over that fleece. I don't know. God, could we just try that one more time? Could we turn it around, though? We're going to run the same experiment, but this time, God, I don't know. Maybe fleece just sucks all the moisture out of the atmosphere. Maybe that's what it was. So here's what I want you to do, God. We're going to, we're going to do that again. One more run. This time, I need a dry fleece and a wet ground. Could you do one more time for me? 
God lets him put out his fleece, and you know how it turns out. The next morning he gets up, dew everywhere, everything soaking wet, and the fleece is dry as a bone. And at that point, Gideon's like, giddy up, let's go do what God said to do. I know God has spoken. Now, we could do a lot of different things with that. We could say, oh, you, you know, of weak faith. Or I, Here's another thing that people do that personally I think is a theological error. People have actually, and I mean some of them really good, well-intentioned people, have turned this into a point of, of their theology that says, you know, if you think God's telling you something, you should fleece God. Which is really a weird thought because... I mean, to fleece someone has become a real negative term, and appropriately so. But we'll hear people today talk about fleecing God. Have God prove it to you that it's Him talking. I wouldn't recommend that. Because Jesus said when people demanded a sign from Him that a wicked and perverse generation asks for a sign. Thankfully, God was real patient and gentle with Gideon, and He he met him at his point of, of a weak faith. So I wouldn't turn this into a part of our theology to go, so every time you're not sure, tell God to do something really stupid and arbitrary just so you'll feel better. I'm saying that out of experience because I tried that several times and it never worked. That's just the honest truth. I asked God to do some really wacky stuff like this. He never did any of it. Never worked out for me. If it did for you, bully for you. But here's the, the point that I do take away from it. That God gives us the unvarnished version of who Gideon is because we need to see that that God didn't use Gideon because he was some giant who had a faith that was just huge he was a small man literally apparently the smallest in his clan smallest in his family but he was a man who didn't have an overwhelming faith he had all kinds of doubts and on top of the doubts that he had he had lots of fears we see that in multiple places, Gideon acknowledges that he's afraid. But the cool thing is that when Gideon was afraid, God supplied what Gideon needed to bolster his courage. Two different places that I'll just mention quickly. The first thing that God did after this whole encounter was he sent Gideon back. And a great lesson in this. He sent him to his home, there in his hometown with his own family to be the first place that he took a stand. Now he's about to have to face off with an army of more than 100,000 of the enemy. But before he's ever ready to do that, to represent the Lord in front of the masses, he first has to go and in his dad's hometown, he has to take a stand before his family and before the people who know him. And the scripture says he was afraid. That's easy to relate to, isn't it? Is there any place that it's harder to take a stand and to voice your faith than it is at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, at those times when the family gets together and when you go to your hometown where everybody knows you and your weaknesses and what a goofball you were as a kid. It's a hard place to do it. But it's an easier place there than facing 100,000. And so God sends him on a mission first. Before you go out and face the world, you need to go set some things in order with your own family in your own hometown. So he sends him in with clear instructions. You go to your daddy's house. And you know the altar and the, to Baal that's there, it's an abomination. You know the, the Asherah poles, the poles that are made into the likeness of, the, of this pagan god, Asherah. He said, I want you to go and tear down that altar and you build a proper altar to the Lord. And then you take those Asherah poles and you cut them up and you use them as the wood for your, your offering as you come and present one of your animals as an appropriate and pleasing offering to the Lord. 
Boy, now that's, that's taking a bold stand. That's the kind of thing that will get you killed, by the way. And it says, Gideon took ten servants, and he set out to do what God told him to do. But he did it at night because he was afraid of his family and the men of that city, is what, what the writer says. I can understand that, can't you? He's just afraid of what they were going to do. And we find out why he was afraid. Because the next day, he does exactly what God told him to do. And the next day, when people come in and they're like, oh, The beautiful altar to Baal and the Asherapals, they're gone. And there's this other weird altar that's been built. What is this about? And somebody's like, oh, I saw who did that. Joash's son, Gideon, did that. And they're like, he must die. We must put him to death today. And his dad has been so moved by what he's done. That his dad, who's the one who apparently made this pagan altar and has all these pagan uh, idols there, he steps up and speaks on behalf of his son and he says, why have you guys got to stand up for Baal? If Baal's a god, why don't you let Baal take care of his own business? If Baal's a god and Baal's so offended, why don't you let Baal deal with Gideon? And they're all like, well, we don't know how to argue with that. And so they all kind of back off and leave him alone. You know what happens as a result of that? Fear begins to be replaced with courage. Well, there's another little story uh, that follows shortly thereafter because as uh, Gideon then begins to call out an army to follow him that's going to go and confront the army of the Midianites, he realizes what overwhelming odds he faces. And they are, where I'm about to tell you just how overwhelming they are. It's impossible odds. And he's just thinking, he's got to be thinking, this is crazy, we're going to die. And so the Lord, condescending to, to his point of need, says, If you're afraid, you just sneak down to the enemy camp. And you just listen in to what they're saying, and you won't be afraid anymore. Take your servant. I won't even make you go by yourself because I know you're afraid. So let him hold your hand, and you go down there and listen and just see what happens. Now, I've got to read this one. I can't just tell you this part because it's... <laughs> It's so good. So he takes his servant and he goes down and, and they, they sneak in. You just picture these guys creeping in. They don't want anybody to see them. And they get close enough to the fire that they can hear two of the Midianites talking. But I, I'll read the setup part. In Judges 7, beginning in verse 10, the Lord says to him, If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. And afterwards you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So Gideon arrived just as a man was telling... A friend, a dream that he had. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp and it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. At this point, if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, okay, I don't think I'm going to find a lot of encouragement in that. This dude has some wacky dreams. He's been smoking mushrooms or something. And he uh, tells his friend that and his friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Do you not want to almost laugh out loud when you read that? The dream and the interpretation. I had a dream last night. It was pretty weird. Loaf of bread came rolling into the camp and the tent got knocked down. I know what that means. Rolling bread, tent knocks down. That must be the Gideon, the son of Joash, whom we've never met or heard of before. Clearly, God is saying he's giving us all into their hands because a loaf of bread rolled in. What? Is God just being God? I mean, sometimes God has to laugh at the stuff that he does just to mess with our heads. He's like, I'm just going to let him hear a bunch of wacky talk. 
for which the interpretation is, this must be God saying that Gideon, son of Joash, is coming to kick our booties. And that's basically what they said. And from that, Gideon goes, giddy up. Obviously, God is with us. Let's go get her done. And, and so they're ready to march off into battle. What's the point? The point is this. Gideon wasn't full of courage. He wasn't full of faith. He was taking little baby steps as he was able. Go in the strength you now have and deliver Israel. God is always going to give you enough strength, enough of what you need for the next hill that you have to take, for the next challenge that's before you. And sometimes the whole war is too much to comprehend, so you just trust that today... If you'll go in the strength that you have, I promise you, if you're depending on God, He's going to give you the strength for whatever you face today. Gideon found that he had the strength to face Dad and his family and the city when he needed that. And now as he's about to face 135,000 of the enemy, he discovers there's strength that he didn't know that he had. And God was willing to meet him at his point of fear and just supply enough to stir faith and courage in him. The next thing in the story is... And it's just one of those little things that's easy to miss, but it's such a key moment. Is When Gideon was filled with the Holy Spirit is the moment that courage really began to replace fear and doubt in his life. When he had gone and he had confronted the situation with the pagan altar at his dad's house and the man had gotten so angry and it looked like he might die, but God saved him from that. In that moment of time is where the writer says in Judges 7, now all the... Uh, all the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern people had joined forces, and they crossed over the Jordan, and they camped at the valley of Jezreel. And then is when the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. And, and, that's, and now he begins to call together an army. He goes from just still trying to process, how is this going to happen? What are we going to do? But as he's thinking about all this, the enemy army, they're coming together. It is a massive army like no one in his generation had ever seen before. And while that's all taking place, and he's trying to process this little victory that he had at his dad's house, and, but there's still nothing resembling the courage to transfer from, you know, I tore down a little altar, and I built a little altar, and I sacrificed one animal, and that was a stand. It was a little stand, but it was a stand. The jump from that to now, I've got to lead an army against those masses. It, it was just too great to get from here to here. What made the biggest difference? It's just that one little line. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon in power. It's worth remembering that in the Old Testament, the Spirit had not come upon all those who belonged to God. That was a gift that was held out for the church. But from time to time, God would single out a man or a woman and He would send His Spirit in power on them. And suddenly, they were empowered to do the impossible. The unthinkable. And that's what happened with Gideon. And from the moment that the Spirit came upon him, the very next thing the writer said happened was, he said, blow the trumpet. And the trumpet was the, the alarm. That was the thing that everybody dropped what they were doing and they came on the run. He said, blow the trumpet everywhere you go. Get the army here. We're about to go retake this land. What was the difference? The difference was the filling of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the application is not complicated. Whatever you face, the biggest challenges, the biggest obstacles, the biggest thing that we need in the face of that is not relief. It's not courage in a bottle. It is the filling of the Spirit of God. 
the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. It needs to be unleashed in us. And it is the filling of the Spirit that makes all the difference. Whatever you're facing. Challenges at work, being laid off from work. Challenges at school, leaving for school. Challenges in your marriage, a dead marriage. Can't find them. Whatever it is, it is the filling of the Spirit that enables us to deal with those things. And then we get to the climax of the whole thing, which is faced with impossible odds, God gives Gideon a huge victory that gave relief to Israel, which lasted for 40 years. Now, I just want to quickly sum up how the rest of the story unfolded. The Midianite and Eastern armies, they gather in this one location 135,000 strong. There's no place on earth probably today that we could capture a picture of an army this vast in one location. So... Gideon has been having the the alarm sounded, call the peoples out. We need to gather an army to go and face them. And there's a massive response. It's really pretty shocking that they would respond to this runt saying, blow the trumpet. I mean, he's a nobody. 32,000 soldiers for Israel come out for battle, all willing to follow Gideon. 32,000 strong. Now, here's the scary thing. They are outnumbered more than four to one, but they've shown up and said, we're willing to fight to retake the land. And so you can just kind of picture Gideon. It's like, still pretty scary. Four to one, worse than four to one. But at least we have an army here, 32,000 strong. Lord, are we good to go now? And God says to Gideon, no, you've got too many men. Too many men? It's still, it's four to one right now. And the Lord says, no, we need to weed this out a bit. Here's what you need to do, Gideon. You just announce to the army, if anyone here shakes with fear, you need to return to your own tent. You need to... Abandon the army. That's a, that's a weird thing to say. Can you imagine saying to an army before battle, Hey, if any of you are scared and your knees are knocking, you need to go home. So he makes that announcement. And he's probably going, Oh, please don't let anybody leave. And I can only imagine with you know, 32,000 men, the fighting men. Oh, 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 oh. You know, I mean, we're, nobody's going to turn and run. 32,000 strong. If anybody's scared, you can go home now. And yes, we'll think you're a coward. You know, it's, a, it's like, I can only imagine in the first moment, everybody's looking around like, I ain't going to be the first one to leave. I'm scared, but I ain't going to be the first to leave. Finally, somebody mustered the courage to take off for home. And then another, and then another, and then another. And suddenly it felt like a flood. In that moment, it felt like nobody was going to stick around because 22,000 people fled. Now... He's left with an army of 10,000 instead of 32,000. The deck is now stacked 13.5 to 1. Those are the odds. 135,000 versus 10,000. Wow. Okay, God. We're ready to go with an army of 10,000. And the Lord says, no, Gideon. If you go with an army of 10,000, you still might think that you won this battle in your own strength. We've got to weed it out some more. To what? We've got to thin this out some more. Here's what I want you to do. Take them all, take all the men down to the water to drink, and you watch how they drink, and I'm going to weed them out from there. Those who bend over and just drink from the, from the water source like that, you, you send them home. The ones who will cup the water and drink from their hands, those are the ones that you keep in the army. And he's just like, oh, I hope everybody cups their water. So he, he just, you go home, you go home, you stay. He goes through... 9,700 are disqualified through that challenge. He's left with an army of 300. 
to face an army of 135,000. He started out with odds of about 4 to 1. Now the odds are 450 to 1. For every one man in his army, there are 450 in the enemy army. God says, yep, we got it about right now. Let's go. That is the point at which God says, but now if you're afraid, sneak down to the camp and listen to what they're saying because they're dreaming about bread rolling into camp. That's where God gives him that. And he comes back and says, giddy up, let's go. It's time to fight. It's so interesting how they go into battle. He doesn't give them swords, shields, clubs, or bows. He says, I want you to each take a torch and a bowl and some frosted flakes. No, it's a torch and no frosted flakes. Torch and a bowl and a trumpet. And those are your weapons. We're going to go in by night. And he says, we're going to divide you up three groups of a hundred. We're going to come at them from three sides. The, the torch and the bowl, by the way, that was an ancient flashlight. Flashlight's off, flashlight's on. You know, it's like hiding the torch under the bowl and carrying a trumpet. And he says, on my signal, here's what we're going to do. I want you to all break your bowls, hold up your torches, flashlight's on, and then blow your horns. I don't know about you, but like when I used to watch movies of, of the Old West, you know, like the 1800s with the cavalry and the Indians, and when the cavalry would come charging in, firing their guns and stuff, the two most useless guys in the cavalry to me were always the guy holding the flag and the guy blowing the, the you know, the, the guy with the bugle. It's like, come on, man, pull out a gun or a sword or something. Everybody in his army is the, you know, they're all the horn tutors. There's nobody with a sword. Do you get the point? Either the Lord wins this battle or we're doomed. It's all God or we're, we're without hope. So they divide up. A hundred on each side. On Gideon's signal. They break their bowls. They hold up their torches. They shout for Gideon and for the Lord. And they blow their horns. And in that moment... God just got in the middle of the battle, and all of the Midianites turned on one another. It felt like chaos. It felt like armies coming at them from every direction, though nobody was charging at them but God himself. And in all of the chaos of the darkness and trying to figure out what to do, they began to attack one another and kill one another. And in that one night, 120,000 Midianites were killed. 120,000 soldiers right there. Two kings from among the Midianites and 15,000 soldiers survived the night and they took off on the run, hightailing it out of the Holy Land. Gideon's like, uh-uh. We're not going to leave 15,000 to wreak havoc. Two is 300. He said, giddy up, let's go. He set out in hot pursuit. It's still 300 against 15,000, but after that night, he's suddenly ready for anything. They give chase, and the word suddenly goes out to the surrounding countryside. Hey, call the army back out. All the cowards and the water drinkers that stick their face in the water, get them all back out here. They're in hot pursuit. Gideon's not waiting for any of them. He and his 300 chase after the 15,000. And we read the conclusion of the story in Judges 8. Zeba and Zalmunna are the, the two kings of Midian that are left alive. It says, now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor. This sounds like Klingon talk from Star Trek, doesn't it? Zeba, Zalmunna, Karkor. With a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. 
Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbeha and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. 135,000 killed that day. Now, I realize we get lost in numbers sometimes. It's like, yeah, that's a bunch of zeros. That's a bunch of people. That was a big victory. That was an unprecedented victory. Can I set this in perspective really quickly for you? The American Revolution was an eight-year conflict. 1775 to 1783, 25,000 Americans perished in the span of those eight years. The First World War... Long, bloody conflict involving many nations. The U.S. took part in the final two years. 116,000 American soldiers died in that entire conflict. Let's bring it closer to today. If you combine the Korean conflict, 1950 to 53, the Vietnam conflict, 1955 to 1975, the first Gulf War, 1990 and 91, the war in Iraq spanning more than a decade, and the war in Afghanistan spanning more than a decade, all five of those conflicts combined cost Americans, 102,000 Americans, their lives. Five wars. There weren't as many Americans to die in those five conflicts as there were to die in the span of a couple of days when God got in the middle of this battle. I mean, can you begin to realize this wasn't a big victory in the history of the world. This was an unprecedented victory. The point, there is no problem. There is no enemy. There is no issue that when God gets in the middle of it and says, I want to deal with this. I want to break this. I want you to be free from this. There is nothing that's impossible for him to overcome. And it doesn't matter how small, how weak, how many times you may have failed. It has nothing to do with your strength. It's not even about the vastness of your faith and your courage. It's about the greatness of your God. Gideon's story is a story of weakness made strong because It was all on God. The truth of the matter is, though Gideon, from our standpoint, looks like he's the hero, he's not. The Lord is the hero of the story. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in John 15 when I read this story, where Jesus said, If you remain in me, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, You can ask whatever you will, and it will be done. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, Gideon was a prime example of apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the weakest of the weak. I'm a coward. I'm little. I can so relate to that. So many of us can. But God brought Gideon along and helped him to learn how to remain in him And how to let his word, God's word, define who he was and what God would do through him. And in in that situation, anything became possible. And the same is true for us. The same spirit that filled Gideon filled you and me. And the same God that gave him victory longs to give us victory in our own lives, in our own marriages, with our own kids, with our own massive struggles. He cares just as much.
He wants to unleash all the power necessary for us to walk in victory. Forty years of peace followed because one little man trusted God. Would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, thank you so much for how you encourage us with the truth of your word and with the stories of little men and women who served a big God. God, I thank you for the victory that you gave Israel, that you gave Gideon. And I thank you for the victory that you give us through the Lord Jesus and his spirit living in us today. God, we don't want for this story to just be a story. We want today to hold on to truth. I pray that today that you would take an ancient story and that you would use it to birth faith in our hearts. I pray that you would speak into our lives where where we have real needs and real struggles and we don't see a solution and we don't see things getting better. I pray, God, that by the voice of your spirit, you would speak in those circumstances, that you would speak into our lives, that you give us eyes of faith to see what you want to do and that you would give us a courage and a faith to believe you for that. I want to ask you to take a moment right now. Some of you, you are struggling with something that is massive. It's weighing on you. And I want to ask you right now to just hold that situation before God and to say, God, I trust you with this. I'm asking you to move in this. I'm asking you to open my eyes and show me what you want to do. Give me a faith to believe you for that. In every one of these situations, Jesus be Lord. In Jesus' name, may there be healing, may there be release, may there be victory in your life, in your family and home. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.